Phase the Second, Maiden No More, from Tessa the D'Urbervilles, by Thomas Hardy. Part One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. The basket was heavy, and the bundle was large, but she lugged them along like a person who did not find her a special burden in material things. Occasionally she stopped to rest in a mechanical way by some gate or post, and then, giving the baggage another hitch upon her full round arm, went steadily on again. It was a Sunday morning in late October, about four months after Tess Derbyfield's arrival at Trantridge, and some few weeks subsequent to the night ride in the chase. The time was not long past daybreak and the yellow luminosity upon the horizon behind her back-lighted the ridge towards which her face was set, the barrier of the veil wherein she had of late been a stranger, which she would have to climb over to reach her birthplace. The ascent was gradual on this side, and the soil and scenery differed much from those within Blakemore Vale. Even the character and accent of the two peoples had shades of difference, despite the amalgamating effects of a roundabout railway so that, though less than twenty miles from the place of her sojourn at Trantridge, her native village had seemed a far-away spot. The field-folk shut in there traded northward and westward, travelled, courted, and married northward and westward, thought northward and westward. Those on this side mainly directed their energies and attention to the east and south. The incline was the same down which D'Urberville had driven her so wildly on that day in June. Tess went up the remainder of its length without stopping, and, on reaching the edge of the escarpment, gazed over the familiar green world beyond, now half-veiled in mist. It was always beautiful from here. It was terribly beautiful to Tess to-day, for, since her eyes last fell upon it, she had learnt that the serpent hisses where the sweet birds sing and her views of life had been totally changed for her by the lesson. Verily another girl than the simple one she had been at home was she who, bowed by thought, stood still here and turned to look behind her. She could not bear to look forward into the veil. Ascending by the long white road that Tess herself had just laboured up, she saw a two-wheeled vehicle beside which walked a man who held up his hand to attract her attention. She obeyed the signal to wait for him with unspeculative repose, and in a few minutes man and horse stopped beside her. "'Why did you slip away by stealth like this?' said D'Urberville, with upbraiding breathlessness. "'On a Sunday morning, too, when people were all in bed. I only discovered it by accident, and I have been driving like the deuce to overtake you. Just look at the mare.' why go off like this you know that nobody wished to hinder your going and how unnecessary it has been for you to toil along on foot and encumber yourself with this heavy load i have followed like a madman simply to drive you the rest of the distance if you won't come back i shan't come back said she i thought you wouldn't i said so well, then, put up your basket and let me help you on. She listlessly placed her basket and bundle within the dog-cart and stepped up, and they sat side by side. She had no fear of him now, 
and in the cause of her confidence her sorrow lay. D'Urberville mechanically lit a cigar, and the journey was continued with broken, unemotional conversation on the commonplace objects by the wayside. He had quite forgotten his struggle to kiss her when, in the early summer, they had driven in the opposite direction along the same road. But she had not, and she sat now like a puppet, replying to his remarks in monosyllables. After some miles they came in view of the clump of trees beyond which the village of Marlet stood. It was only then that her still face showed the least emotion, a tear or two beginning to trickle down. "'What are you crying for?' he coldly asked. "'I was only thinking that I was born over there,' murmured Tess. "'Well, we must all be born somewhere.' I wish I had never been born, there or anywhere else. Pooh! Well, if you didn't wish to come to Trantridge, why did you come? She did not reply. You didn't come for love for me, that I'll swear. Tis quite true. If I had gone for love of you, if I had ever sincerely loved you, if I loved you still, I should not so loathe and hate myself for my weakness as I do now. My eyes were dazed by you for a little, and that was all. He shrugged his shoulders. She resumed. I didn't understand your meaning till it was too late. <sighs> That's what every woman says. How can you dare to use such words? she cried, turning impetuously upon him, her eyes flashing, as the latent spirit, of which he was to see more some day, awoke in her. My God! I could knock you out of the gig. Did it never strike your mind that what every woman says, some women may feel? <laughs> Very well, he said, laughing. I am sorry to wound you. I did wrong. I admit it. He dropped into some little bitterness as he continued. Only you needn't be so everlastingly flinging it in my face. I am ready to pay, to the uttermost farthing. You know you need not work in the fields or the dairies again. You know you may clothe yourself with the best, instead of in the bald, plain way you have lately affected, as if you couldn't get a ribbon more than you earn. Her lip lifted slightly, though there was little scorn, as a rule, in her large and impulsive nature. I have said I will not take anything more from you, and I will not, I cannot. I should be your creature to go on doing that, and I won't. One would think you were a princess from your manner, in addition to a true and original D'Urberville. <laughs> well, Tess, dear, I can say no more. I suppose I am a bad fellow, a damn bad fellow. I was born bad, and I have lived bad, and I shall die bad, in all probability. But upon my lost soul, I won't be bad towards you again, Tess. And if certain circumstances should arise, you understand, in which you are in the least need, the least difficulty, send me one line, and you shall have by return whatever you require. I may not be in Trantridge. I am going to London for a time. I can't stand the old woman. 
but all letters will be forwarded. She said that she did not wish him to drive her further, and they stopped just under the clump of trees. D'Urberville alighted and lifted her down bodily in his arms, afterwards placing her articles on the ground beside her. She bowed to him slightly, her eye just lingering in his, and then she turned to take the parcels for departure. Alec D'Urberville removed his cigar, bent towards her, and said, "'You are not going to turn away like that, dear. Come.' "'If you wish,' she answered indifferently, "'see how you've mastered me.' She thereupon turned round and lifted her face to his, and remained like a marble term while he imprinted a kiss upon her cheek, half perfunctorily half as if zest had not yet quite died out. Her eyes vaguely rested upon the remotest trees in the lane while the kiss was given, as though she were nearly unconscious of what he did. Now the other side, for old acquaintance' sake. She turned her head in the same passive way, as one might turn at the request of a sketcher or hairdresser and he kissed the other side, his lips touching cheeks that were damp and smoothly chill as the skin of the mushrooms in the fields around. "'You don't give me your mouth and kiss me back. You're never willing to do that. You'll never love me, I fear. I have said so often. It is true. I have never really and truly loved you, and I think I never can,' she added mournfully. Perhaps, of all things, a lie on this thing would do the most good to me now. But I have honour enough left, little as it is, not to tell that lie. If I did love you, I may have the best of causes for letting you know it. But I don't. He emitted a laboured breath, as if the scene were getting rather oppressive to his heart, or to his conscience, or to his gentility. "'Well, you are absurdly melancholy, Tess. I have no reason for flattering you now, and I can say plainly that you need not be so sad. You can hold your own for beauty against any woman of these parts, gentle or simple. I say it to you as a practical man and well-wisher. If you are wise, you will show it to the world more than you do before it fades. And yet— Tess, will you come back to me? Upon my soul, I don't like to let you go like this. Never, never. I made up my mind as soon as I saw what I ought to have seen sooner, and I won't come. Then good morning, my four-months cousin. Good-bye. He leaped up lightly, arranged the reins, and was gone between the tall red-buried hedges. Tess did not look after him, but slowly wound along the crooked lane. It was still early, and, though the sun's lower limb was just free of the hill, his rays, ungenial and peering, addressed the eye rather than the touch as yet. There was not a human soul near. Sad October, and her sadder self, seemed the only two existences haunting that lane. As she walked, however, some footsteps approached behind her, the footsteps of a man, and owing to the briskness of his advance he was close at her heels and said, "'Good morning,' before she had been long aware of his propinquity. 
he appeared to be an artisan of some sort and carried a tin pot of red paint in his hand he asked in a business-like manner if he should take her basket which she permitted him to do walking beside him it is early to be astir this sabbath morn he said cheerfully yes said tess when most people are at rest from their week's work she also assented to this though i do more real work to-day than all the week besides do you all the week i work for the glory of man and on sunday for the glory of god that's more real than the other eh i have a little to do here at this style the man turned as he spoke to an opening at the roadside leading into a pasture if you'll wait a moment he added i shall not be long as he had her basket she could not do well otherwise and she waited observing him he set down her basket and the tin pot and stirring the paint with the brush that was in it began painting large square letters on the middle board of the three composing the style placing a comma after each word as if to give pause while that word was driven home to the reader's heart thy damnation slumbereth not second peter two three against the peaceful landscape the pale decaying tints of the copses the blue air of the horizon and the lichened style-boards these staring vermilion words shone forth they seemed to shout themselves out and make the atmosphere ring some people might have cried alas poor theology at the hideous defacement the last grotesque phase of a creed which had served mankind well in its time but the words entered tess with accusatory horror it was as if this man had known her recent history yet he was a total stranger having finished his text he picked up her basket and she mechanically resumed her walk beside him do you believe what you paint she asked in low tones believe that text do i believe in my own existence but she said tremulously suppose your sin was not of your own seeking he shook his head i cannot split hairs on that burning query he said i have walked hundreds of miles this past summer painting these texts on every wall gate and style the length and breadth of this district i leave their application to the hearts of the people who read them i think they are horrible said tess crushing killing that's what they are meant to be he replied in a trade voice but you should read my hottest ones them i keeps for slums and seaports they'd make ye wriggle not but what this is a very good text for rural districts ah there's a nice bit of blank wall up by that barn standing to waste i must put one there one that would be good for dangerous young females like yourself to heed will you wait missy no said she and taking her basket tess trudged on a little way forward she turned her head the old grey wall began to advertise a similar fiery lettering to the first with a strange and unwanted mien as if distressed at duties it had never before been called upon to perform it was with a sudden flush that she read and realized what was to be the inscription he was now half-way through thou shalt not commit 
her cheerful friend saw her looking, stopped his brush, and shouted, "'If you want to ask for edification on these things of moment, there's a very earnest good man going to preach a charity sermon to-day in the parish you are going to, Mr. Clare of Eminster. I'm not of his persuasion now, but he's a good man, and he'll expound as well as any parson I know. Twas he began the work in me.' But Tess did not answer. She throbbingly resumed her walk, her eyes fixed on the ground. Pooh! I don't believe God said such things, she murmured contemptuously, when her flush had died away. A plume of smoke soared up suddenly from her father's chimney, the sight of which made her heart ache. The aspect of the interior, when she reached it, made her heart ache more. Her mother, who had just come downstairs, turned to greet her from the fireplace, where she was kindling barked oak twigs under the breakfast kettle. The young children were still above, as was also her father, it being Sunday morning, when he felt justified in lying an additional half-hour. "'Well, my dear Tess!' exclaimed her surprised mother, jumping up and kissing the girl. "'How be ye! I didn't see you till you was in upon me. Have you come home to be married?' "'No, I have not come for that, mother. Then for a holiday.' yes for a holiday for a long holiday said tess what isn't your cousin going to do the handsome thing he's not my cousin and he's not going to marry me her mother eyed her narrowly come you have not told me all she said then tess went up to her mother put her face upon joan's neck and told and yet that's not got him to marry ye reiterated her mother any woman would have done it but you after that perhaps any woman wouldn't accept me it would have been something like a story to come back with if you had continued mrs durbeyfield ready to burst into tears of vexation after all the talk about you and him which has reached us here who would have expected it to end like this why didn't you think of doing some good for your family instead of thinking only for yourself see how i've got to teave and slave and your poor weak father with his heart clogged like a dripping-pan i do hope for something to come out of this to see what a pretty pair you and he made that day when you drove away together four months ago see what he has given us all as we thought because we were his kin if he's not, it must have been done because of his love for ye, and yet you've not got him to marry. Get Alec Durberfield in the mind to marry her. He marry her. On matrimony he had never once said a word. And what if he had? How a convulsive snatching at social salvation might have impelled her to answer him, she could not say but her poor foolish mother little knew her present feeling towards this man perhaps it was unusual in the circumstances unlucky unaccountable but there it was and this as she had said was what made her detest herself she had never wholly cared for him she did not at all care for him now 
she had dreaded him winced before him succumbed to adroit advantages he took of her helplessness then temporarily blinded by his ardent manners had been stirred to confused surrender a while had suddenly despised and disliked him and had run away that was all hate him she did not quite but he was dust and ashes to her and even for her name's sake she scarcely wished to marry him you ought to have been more careful if you didn't mean to get him to make you his wife oh mother my mother cried the agonized girl turning passionately upon her parent as if her poor heart would break how could i be expected to know i was a child when i left this house four months ago why didn't you tell me there was danger in menfolk why didn't you warn me ladies know what to fend hands against because they read novels that tell them of these tricks but i never had the chance of learning in that way and you did not help me her mother was subdued i thought if i spoke of his fond feelings and what they might lead to you would be honest with him and lose your chance she murmured wiping her eyes with her apron well we must make the best of it i suppose tis nature after all and what do please god chapter thirteen the event of tess durbeyfield's return from the manor of her bogus kinsfolk was rumoured abroad if rumour be not too large a word for a space of a square mile in the afternoon several young girls of marlott former schoolfellows and acquaintances of tess called to see her arriving dressed in their best starched and ironed as became visitors to a person who had made a transcendent conquest as they supposed and sat round the room looking at her with great curiosity for the fact that it was this said thirty-first cousin mr d'herbeville who had fallen in love with her a gentleman not altogether local whose reputation as a reckless gallant and heartbreaker was beginning to spread beyond the immediate boundaries of trantridge lent tess's supposed position by its fearsomeness a far higher fascination than it would have exercised if unhazardous their interest was so deep that the younger ones whispered when her back was turned how pretty she is and how that best frock do set her off i believe it cost an immense deal and that it was a gift from him tess who was reaching up to get the tea-things from the corner cupboard did not hear these commentaries if she had heard them she might soon have set her friends right on the matter but her mother heard and joan's simple vanity having been denied the hope of a dashing marriage fed itself as well as it could upon the sensation of a dashing flirtation upon the whole she felt gratified even though such a limited and evanescent triumph should involve her daughter's reputation it might end in marriage yet and in the warmth of her responsiveness to their admiration she invited her visitors to stay to tea their chatter their laughter their good-humoured innuendos above all their flashes and flickerings of envy revived tessa's spirits also and as the evening wore on she caught the infection of their excitement and grew almost gay the marble hardness left her face she moved with something of her old bounding step and flushed in all her young beauty at moments in spite of thought she would reply to their inquiries with a manner of superiority 
as if recognizing that her experiences in the field of courtship had indeed been slightly enviable. But so far was she from being, in the words of Robert South, in love with her own ruin, that the illusion was transient as lightning. Cold reason came back to mock her spasmodic weakness. The ghastliness of her momentary pride would convict her, and recall her to reserved listlessness again. And the despondency of the next morning's dawn, when it was no longer Sunday, but Monday, and no best clothes, and the laughing visitors were gone, and she awoke alone in her old bed, the innocent young children breathing softly around her. In place of the excitement of her return, and the interest it had inspired, she saw before her a long and stony highway which she had to tread, without aid and with little sympathy. Her depression was then terrible, and she could have hidden herself in a tomb. In the course of a few weeks Tess revived sufficiently to show herself so far as was necessary to get to church one Sunday morning. She liked to hear the chanting, such as it was, and the old psalms, and to join in the morning hymn. That innate love of melody which she had inherited from her ballad-singing mother gave the simplest music a power over her which could well-nigh drag her heart out of her bosom at times. To be as much out of observation as possible for reasons of her own, and to escape the gallantries of the young men, she set out before the chiming began, and took a back seat under the gallery, close to the lumber, where only old men and women came, and where the beer stood on the end among the churchyard tools. Parishioners dropped in by twos and threes, deposited themselves in rows before her, rested three-quarters of a minute on their foreheads as if they were praying, though they were not, then sat up and looked around. When the chants came on, one of her favorites happened to be chosen among the rest, the old double chant Langdon. But she did not know what it was called, though she would have much liked to know. She thought, without exactly wording the thought, how strange and godlike was a composer's power, who from the grave could lead through sequences of emotion which he alone had felt at first, a girl like her, who had never heard of his name and never would have a clue to his personality. The people who had turned their heads turned them again as the service proceeded, and at last observing her, they whispered to each other. She knew what their whispers were about, grew sick at heart, and felt that she could come to church no more. The bedroom which she shared with some of the children formed her retreat more continually than ever. Here, under her few square yards of thatch, she watched winds and snows and rains, gorgeous sunsets, and successive moons at their fall. So close kept she that at length almost everybody thought she had gone away. The only exercise that Tess took at this time was after dark and it was then, when out in the woods, that she seemed least solitary. She knew how to hit to a hair's breadth that moment of evening when the light and the darkness are so evenly balanced that the constraint of day and the suspense of night neutralize each other, leaving absolute mental liberty. It is then that the plight of being alive becomes attenuated to its least possible dimensions. She had no fear of the shadows, her sole idea seemed to be to shun mankind, or, rather, that cold accretion called the world, which, so terrible in the mass, is so unformidable, even pitiable, in its units. 
on these lonely hills and dales her quiescent glide was of a piece with the element she moved in her flexuous and stealthy figure became an integral part of the scene at times her whimsical fancy would intensify natural processes around her till they seemed a part of her own story rather they became a part of it for the world is only a psychological phenomenon and what they seemed they were the midnight airs and gusts moaning against the tightly wrapped buds and bark of the winter twigs were formulae of bitter reproach a wet day was the expression of irremediable grief at her weakness in the mind of some vague ethical being whom she could not class definitely as the god of her childhood and could not comprehend as any other but this encompassment of her own characterization based on shreds of convention peopled by phantoms and voices antipathetic to her was a sorry and mistaken creation of tess's fancy a cloud of moral hobgoblins by which she was terrified without reason it was they who were out of harmony with the actual world not she walking among the sleeping birds in the hedges watching the skipping rabbits on a moonlit warren or standing under a pheasant-laden bough she looked upon herself as a figure of guilt intruding into the haunts of innocence but all the while she was making a distinction where there was no difference feeling herself in antagonism she was quite in accord she had been made to break an accepted social law but no law known to the environment in which she fancied herself such an anomaly end of part one